Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben. Morning, Gabe. Good morning. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a deaf girl and her family who use sign language to survive when the world is under attack from terrifying blind creatures with hypersensitive hearing that hunt their human prey by sound. It's A Quiet Place versus The Silence. Let the extinction begin. So, as usual, let's kick off this ep with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them, which, by the way, given that these films came out so recently, wasn't so long ago. Because on the 6th of April 2018, A Quiet Place was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. In a post-apocalyptic world, a family is forced to live in silence while hiding from monsters with ultra-sensitive hearing. Gabe, when and where did you first catch A Quiet Place and how was it? At home on VOD. Uh, I didn't see this at the movies, yeah. Oh, luxury, luxury. Uh, did This did quite well at the cinema, but I, for, for whatever reason, I don't think I went and saw it. I don't know if something else was released that week that I saw instead, but no, I I watched it in the luxury of my own home. What about you? I saw it at the cinema. Uh, the reviews had said that it was really important to enjoy it uh, where the environment was controlled, it was quiet. And weirdly, they suggested a cinema would be the place to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And um, I have come so close to fisticuffs with noisy patrons in the cinema that I actually pretty much steered away for the first few weeks of its release until the audiences dissipated. So I could actually go and enjoy it in a big dark space and there wouldn't be some sort of Muppet munching his popcorn because these films... Um, Wow, you know, noise by audiences would totally destroy the experience. So, yeah, I think I saw it in the, like, the last week that it possibly played and it was myself and just one person in the cinema. And as I walked in there, I just eyed this guy, like, you know, the two fingers pointing at your eyes and then back at him, like, dude, if you dare pull out an apple or a slurpy drink or anything remotely noisy, Benny ain't going to be happy. And fortunately, this guy respected me. Hey, wait, 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 wait. You're allowed to, you're allowed to drink in a cinema, dude. Yeah, I mean, come on. You can have a Slurpee. No, no, not this movie. This movie depends on quietness. It's even in the title. It's called A Quiet Place. You need a quiet place to enjoy this movie. Jesus. I think. Um, I should add, by the way, it's a bit of a caveat to this podcast recording. I'm currently recording this in my backyard studio where it's being pummeled by rain just smashing the tin roof. So it might sound like static, it might sound like a huge storm, but it's ironically the worst place to record a podcast about films that are dependent on silence. Gabe, what are your conditions like where you are recording from now? Uh, I'm in a spare bedroom in my wife's parents' house. Uh, Everyone else is asleep. So uh, if we need to switch this podcast over to sign language, we are willing and ready to do that. You and I. <laughs> um, so perhaps we'll get the usual Gabe enthusiasm because you can't actually punctuate, you know, the air with that same, you know, those, that, that hearty laugh of yours. But I guess it's sort of on brand for this podcast recording. No, that's right. It'll be a, it'll be a wheeze instead. 
Okie doke, then let's jump to the next film because uh, later on the 10th of April 2019, The Silence was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. When the world is under attack from terrifying creatures who hunt their human prey by sound, 16-year-old Ali Andrews, who lost her hearing at 13, and her family seek refuge in a remote haven. Gabe, when, where and how did you first watch The Silence? Um, Netflix. This came out on Netflix, right? I didn't somehow miss the theatre window. Yeah, it made some coin with a brief release, I think like one or two screens at the cinema, but it was predominantly released on Netflix. But not here, not here in Australia. Not here, not in not Australia, no. No, like, like I wasn't in Sri Lanka at the time uh, when it was released there or one of the those territories. No, not, not sure. But, um, yeah, it didn't get a huge release around the world. It was mainly a Netflix release. So walk me through your experience. Um, did you have a controlled conditions to enjoy and appreciate it? Um, I, I'm pretty sure I sat down on the couch, scrolled listlessly through Netflix for quite some time before finally resigning to settle on this. Wow, what, such a plug. <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the Netflix experience. I mean, and we here in Australia have a Netflix, what we'd call catalogue or library, that I think is smaller than, say, the breadth of choice in America. So, I'll- yeah, I think it's improving, but when it was first launched here, a lot of the cable TV providers and other TV um, networks had the rights to stuff, which Netflix US has. But it's better now than it used to be, but certainly isn't as wide as the US selection. Sure, sure. I mean, look, I've got like a thousand DVDs and Blu rays, and it'll still be late at night, and I'll be staring at those for about 45 minutes trying to figure what to watch before finally choosing something and falling asleep in the first five minutes of it. So, you know, technology might change, but my 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 behaviour remains the same. Yeah, but it's so true, isn't it? Like, it's the same sort of thing that people apply to dating. Like, there's always something better around the horizon. And not that I would recommend this way of dating, but what I'm saying is that I myself have a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a DVD collection as well. And you've got all these great films, which are usually the films that you love and want to watch more than once on your shelf, yet you will still find yourself just scrolling through Netflix because... It's easier to scroll and press a button and press play than to get a DVD out, open up the case, put in the DVD player, wait for it to load through that stupid menu. It's a five, seven minute experience and I'm already falling asleep by that stage. Whereas by pressing Netflix, I'm more likely to at least be able to get the first five minutes started. Yep, that's right. There must be a name for this kind of condition, Gabe. Ennui? <laughs> sure. Uh, depression, <laughs> listlessness. Uh, Poor drinks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The hardness of this world slowly grinding my dreams away. <laughs> well, I saw this myself on Netflix as well, but I saw it especially for this pod. So it's particularly fresh in my memory. And as I mentioned before, I have these super-duper headphones that are designed for planes where they're just noise-cancelling over-the-ear headphones. And so when you live in a house with a couple of noisy people around you, it's nice to have just that controlled environment. So, yeah, this was probably actually a better experience than watching A Quiet Place even because it was I could hear everything perfectly. It was a really tense film and I actually found it tenser to watch this than watching A Quiet Place in the cinema. Wow, really? Yeah, I know. Wow. Yeah, I actually enjoy, I enjoyed this film, which we'll get to. Yeah, nice. But before we do, let's do our little uh, quick history lesson, our little jump into uh, Hollywood history as to how these two twin movies came about 
at the same time. The Silence is a screenplay by Kerry and Shane Van Dyke and adapts the 2015 horror novel of the same name by Tim LeBon. Did you know, by the way, that these Van Dykes are actually the grandsons, or Shane is, of Mr. Van Dyke, the guy who did all the dancing with those penguins? Dick Van Dyke, he of Diagnosis Murder. Yeah, and actually Shane Van Dyke actually appeared in Diagnosis Murder. I love that show. Yeah, well, a little treat for you today. Oh, nice, um, nice. So that's its origins, based on a pre-existing piece of intellectual property. But Ben, we should we should point out we should point out it looks to people like this could be one of those. What do you call those movies that are? Uh, mock, is it Mockbuster? A Mockbuster. Right. Mockbuster. But but is that not the case here? No, A Quiet Place uh, came from a screenplay. And two guys, Beck and Woods, two screenwriters, began writing it in January 2016. And then the director who came on board, Krasinski, read their initial script in July and then came on board to start rewriting it with his own voice. And so the three of them share writing credit. But they started writing it in early 2016 after the 2015 novel, The Silence, had been published. So it's a terrible situation that The Silence as a concept came first and to be fair, there's probably other stories out there before The Silence, the novel, that are based on a similar concept. But it came first. And unfortunately, it just took longer to make. Whereas A Quiet Place was an original screenplay, although it's based on the same premise. And essentially, it was just fast-tracked to production. So I really feel for the guys behind The Silence because they've done everything right. It's a, it's a book already, so it's already enshrined as a piece of entertainment in some other way thus sort of making it a safer bet to adapt. And it just just bad luck. And the uh, novelist Tim LeBon actually, when he was aware of this race to the cinemas with two very similar ideas, did say that he hoped that The Silence, based on his book, would, you know, stand out on its own. But gee, you know, like these films are so similar in concept. If you're not the first one at the cinema, I think you're dead and buried. I mean, if you'd written a book about a family with a uh, deaf daughter fighting to survive in a post-apocalyptic world against monsters that hunt by sound i mean would you would you would you visit maybe an attorney when a quiet place came out and say hey look how close to you know you can't copy what's that thing you can't copyright an idea only the execution of it or something but you still might be like i don't know guys maybe they should just give me $10,000 under the table or something. I agree. And if not the novelist, at least the producers. Like when you've got a high concept that is so specific, it stands out if it's the only one, but you are dead and buried if there's two of the same idea because it's very hard to sort of differentiate yourself. I'm surprised there wasn't in my very, very intense Google researching some sort of reference to perhaps a lawsuit or some cash under the table. Um, and maybe there was, maybe there was like a settlement that wasn't declared. But even then, you usually hear about settlements and they won't disclose the figure, mm. but they will mention there was a settlement. And at least you know there was a settlement because they went to court in the first place and then settled. So, yeah, it's odd. Um, I feel, I really feel for everyone in the silence, like the producers who actually optioned the book, the director, the writers, the actors. I mean, it's just bad luck. It's just absolute bad luck. I mean, serendipity is not the right word for it. Serendipity, no. No, that's right. So, but, I mean, it's also possible, I suppose, that the, the guys pre-Krasinski who wrote the script hadn't 
I, I mean, it's not, I'd never heard of this book. If I pitched to you an idea like this, you know, if I said, hey, Ben, how about a movie about a person who uh, has an incredible sense of smell and then monsters hunt by smell and and it turned out that there was a book of that sort of idea, we'd never know that. We just wrote a book about don't fart or they'll kill you. You see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, but, you know, the classic expression, there's no uh, ignorance, there's no excuse in the law and no one's suggesting that the filmmakers behind A Quiet Place copied the idea of the silence at all. It's just one of those classic cases that people, you know, it's for, for the dawn of time, like the invention of electricity and so on, have had a similar idea at the same time. I was reading recently that, the Rubik's Cube, which was invented in about, I think it was at 76 or so, but was bought in about 82 by the Rubik's Company. In 76 in Japan, a guy invented exactly the same toy. And this is one of the most profitable, successful toys of all time. And he just, in the same year, across on the other side of the world, pre-internet, invented exactly the same toy and got a patent on it because at the time you get a patent in Japan if it was novel in Japan as a concept or an idea, not just novel internationally. And obviously back then too, it would have been harder to, it would have taken a longer time to communicate with people as to work out what was being created elsewhere. Uh, so that, this guy actually still, that will still held that patent for a while in parallel to the Rubik's Cube. So this I think is the same situation. The problem would be though, is that just because you didn't know someone else had that idea, it doesn't mean you can still make it. It's just unfortunate that you didn't know, didn't do your research. It was just coincidence. So, well, I'm not a I'm not a big city lawyer like you, Ben, <laughs> and I'm neither of those things either. Either in a big city or a lawyer. Well. <laughs> All right, let's uh, jump to our review, mate. So let's start with the film that came out first, and I would say ate the lunch of the silence. Let's start with a quiet place. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with the silence? I liked it. I think everyone liked this movie, didn't they? It got got well reviewed and everyone talked about it for the week or two it came out. It's very nicely directed by that guy who, you know, eyeballs the camera often in the office. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk he had it in him? You know, he's got a hunky beard. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I mean, it's not without its, you know, sillinesses, but both of these movies have that. I guess I haven't really thought about it much since I saw it, though. Did it stick with me? Perhaps not. Wow. This is like pulling fucking, you know... Well, I mean... <laughs> uh, ...fingernails out for a review, Gabe. Uh, you don't seem that jazzed. But, uh, look, I'll give you something, nor do I. So I'll throw it to me if you want to keep, sort of save you some uh, pain. No, look, 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 Ben, Ben. There's, there's more I can say about various bits and pieces when we get into that, but just as a general broad o- overview, you know, like... I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good movie. It was a good movie. Uh, you've seen it. You liked it. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, Roger Ebert. Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I feel the same in a sense. I can't speak much about this film, and I feel this will be the shortest review of this entire podcast series. I think it's because I'm not sure. I'm trying to put my finger on why I can't wax lyrical about it or even criticise it. I'm not sure if there's something to do with the – concept but that doesn't make sense because there's still a plot there's still characters things still happen there are still still things to praise or criticize but for some reason and we'll get to this too with uh the silence i just kind of like excuse the pun lost for words 
Um, <laughs> so I can admire A Quiet Place as a film. I really enjoyed it. I haven't revisited it for this podcast episode, and ordinarily I always do that, but I've never felt a hunger to go back to this film. And in some respects, this is a film that I admire, not enjoy, uh-huh. hence not wanting to revisit it. And it feels also like a great exercise. Like this to me is the genre version of the indie or art house Euro film, which is so, quote, cinema, unquote, that it's told all visually with little dialogue. You know those indie films, Gabe, often from Europe and Australia tried to ape it in the indie scene in the early, mid-2000s where it's so pure cinema, it's stripped of, of dialogue and you just sort of follow people. And we sort of saw elements of this become a little bit more mainstream, I suppose, with good old Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, um, you know, we follow people's lives. Like we literally, the camera literally follows them, trails them as they stumble through their existence. And we just sort of observe what's going on. And if they're often by themselves, it's an environment where there isn't a chance to talk. And I remember, this will be kind of amusing to you, Gabe, when we were writing together feature screenplays, thinking, what's a conceit in which you can have people not talk at all to be pure cinema in that way and just show don't tell, as they say in screenwriting terms. And I always thought of something like Castaway with Tom Hanks, right? But even Castaway actually gets around that by then having him create a human-like character from Wilson the Volleyball who he talks to. So even that film where you've got one person by themselves, they still talk. And this to me feels like a well-executed exercise where you go, okay, they can't talk, therefore we have to tell the whole story visually, which is often a defining trait of horror films anyway, like where someone's being stalked in the, in, in the dead of night. And if that's going to be baked into the superpower skill of our aliens that terrorise these people. Mm. So that's kind of why I admire it, not love it. And I appreciate the jump scares, the tension. Um, you do feel like you're in the feet of the family in that every time you walk on the floorboards and there's a creak or, you know, one of the kids who is just too young to know better does something silly, you can't control that. I empathise incredibly, you know, as a dad myself with all those situations and all of the terror and horror. But I've never felt the need to go back to it. Right. Right. And I can't put my finger on why that is. And maybe it's because it's more like an exercise rather than an emotionally gauging movie. There's no shame in a movie just being a, you know, one and done. Not at all. You can watch a movie once. You know, not all movies have to be Leprechaun 4 in space with tons of rewatchability. <laughs> you know, this doesn't live up to that. That's fine. I'll tell you something I do like about this movie, though, Ben. They kill a kid. You're right. And they kill a kid early. I love it. I love it in movies when they kill kids. It never happens. It never happens. You know? They don't kill kids and they infrequently kill dogs. Well, I guess the silence kills a dog and a quiet place kills a kid. I, I don't really care for them. Well, the silence actually kills an uncle as well. Well, who gives a fuck about an uncle, <laughs> you know? But, but, but it does feel to me like a quiet place does say, uh, we killed a kid, hey, now anything's game, except that there's only three characters left. So it's not like, well, 
you know, maybe one more of you will die. Probably won't be the probably won't be the deaf girl because I don't know, I just don't think you can I don't think you can kill a kid with a disability. I think that's one step too far. Well, I thought where it might land is that the girl who's deaf uh, actually is the only one who survives. Like it's not uncommon for kids to lose their parents in films and get out and survive and often in the last third of the movie the parents sacrifice themselves for the kid. And I suppose we have a version of that where one of the parents sacrifices themselves here. Um, but um, I, I, I guess I have a, a problem with one of the sort of big central premises of this movie, that these parents are such fucking assholes that they've decided to have a child, a new baby, in a post-apocalyptic world where even the tiniest sound will mean that a whole bunch of monsters will descend and eat you. But these jerk-offs want to have a baby. Well, do they want to have a baby or is it just a case they love each other in a very special way and a baby happened accidentally? I mean, that's reasonable. What the fuck? What do you, what, you don't need to explain babies. Like, I'm not an eight-year-old dude when a man loves a woman and they do a <laughs> they have a special a, a special kind of cuddle, you know? <laughs> Bro, it's like it's a post-apocalypse and nearly everyone's dead. I'm sure they could find a chemist and get some frangers. <laughs> well, they actually do go to a chemist at one stage, I think. Look, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this is why, though, I th- think it perhaps feels like an exercise is that they're having a baby and that is just the best ticking bomb in the movie. Like everything from giving birth, in which she'll inevitably scream, to a baby being born who will inevitably cry. Like this is just the worst case scenario and a great example of screenwriting where you raise the stakes to think what is the sort of noise that is the loudest and cannot be controlled in a world where you'll die if something hears you. Okay, babies and childbirth, genius. But I guess from a logical point of view or a character point of view, I agree. You've got to ask yourself the question, why? Like what, what's the best case scenario here? Like they can't smother the baby. They can't live in, an, in a basement, you know, for what, four years? Like my kids still cry and they're like, you know, way part, they're at school. So They're like 17 years old and they're always crying. <laughs> that's right, just rocking themselves on the ground. Um, so from a character point of view, I think it's a really fair criticism, Gabe. Like, like why would they be that selfish or that stupid when in the rest of the film they come across as being incredibly caring and smart? Yeah, yeah. And I, look, there's not, it's not like there's another set of characters who can turn up and verbalise that criticism, I guess. You know, like- if they met someone who was like, "Wow, you're a bunch of fuckwits for having a having a kid," you know, I mean, you could you could make an argument anyway about the broader morality of having uh, babies in any post-apocalyptic setting or a contemporary war zone now, like in our current world, for example. Totally, or a film, not even a war zone, a world where there isn't enough food or drinking water. Totally. So I don't know. I just they just they just seem like jerks from the get-go. And are they, are they just trying to replace their their dead son? Well, look, look, I'd say this. Their answer would be, and you see this in sci-fi movies as well, where it's people have to make a choice between love and survival and they choose love, which doesn't make intellectual sense, but it's a case of sometimes the heart overrules the head. I think in this film the characters would say, if we don't procreate or love each other and express ourselves through a child being born, then what are we? We've lost our humanity. That would be the 
sort of smart screenwriter response I can imagine coming back. I would counter that by saying, yeah, but, yeah, but if you all die, and as it transpires, dad does die, like, spoilers, then was it all worth it? Like, there's no point, if you start losing family, your numbers are dwindling anyway. And frankly, dad dying is a greater loss in this family than a baby not being born. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the movie ends with Emily Blunt and her daughter and now they got a baby. It's like, good luck. They're fucked. Can't wait for the sequel to find out how they all die. Well, so there is a sequel which we can kind of like reference in our later pitch and that basically seems to infer that they discover something worse than the aliens, which is probably going to be those terrible dickhead people you meet in apocalyptic worlds that are worse than the zombies, you know, like. You you mean the plot of The Silence? Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Okay. That's right. The Silence is a spiritual sequel to A Quiet Place. Um, (laughs) I I mean, ragging on that central kind of premise, you know, I I don't want to be unfair to this movie because, like I said, I think it is very well well made, well constructed, well performed. I have to say, I do like how ambiguous it is about the the sort of backstory of the the creatures. You know, we sort of know that they're aliens who landed on a meteorite or something. But you know, compared to the silence, which is like <laughs> some some dorks dug a hole and they all flew out. Uh, I, I think this is a case of less is more, and that's more effective. Um, yeah, I agree. It's always interesting when you see a film where the conditions have already the catalyst has already occurred and now they're kind of settled and ensconced in their new reality and just trust the audience that they don't need to know too much about how we got here. Where we are now was pretty bad. Yeah, totally. Um, It's like out of like Reign of Fire more probably if they'd cut the first 10 minutes out of that. Ever seen that movie about the dragons? It's cool. Um, Always wanted to. Always wanted to. Can I just say though, by the way, it's funny though, I also do like films like The Silence that do show things happening in real time. Like- I actually enjoy both versions. I like the version they drop you into the world that's pre-established, like in A Quiet Place, where these aliens have been around for a while and it's already post-apocalyptic. But I also enjoy the experiences of you watching something like The Silence where it's unfolding in real time and you start thinking to yourself, what would I do? Where would I hide? You know, I find that as interesting as well. Sure, that's fair. That's fair. It's interesting before you said something about... um, uh, um, if you were writing these movies, what is the worst possible situation that you could put these characters in? Um, I guess it's no surprise that both of these films have deaf characters then. Okay, well, that brings me to this point, which is really interesting. So on the face of it, would you agree, just initially without thinking too deeply about it, that having a deaf character who interacts with a family by sign language is essentially a superpower in these particular worlds where ordinarily it'd be considered a disadvantage in a regular smooth-running society without aliens. Fair to say? Yeah, yeah. It's like Maury Chaikin in that movie Blindness. What's the story there is that he's already blind and so he has the advantage already. So he can exploit everyone by pimping everyone out. (laughs) Well, okay, so when I first heard the pitch for this film and watched this film, I thought, this is great. Like, I love it when you take a character whose disadvantage becomes an advantage And particularly if they've been bullied or something like that, as teenagers often are, and suddenly these guys have this unique superset of, you know, Liam Neeson taken S skills that can help them survive where others can't. It's not about brute force. It's about communication. 
However, having said that, let me say this. To me, that's actually also a massive flaw in these movies, which isn't exploited enough. Just because they can communicate together doesn't mean they can survive. Because both teenage girls, I think, are actually the weakest link. If you are deaf in this world, you can't hear yourself. And that makes you the most dangerous person to the people around you. You can't hear yourself tread on the ground and there's a floorboard creak. You can't hear yourself accidentally knock a glass with your elbow off a table and it smashes. And I don't think either of those films exploit that enough. Like, particularly the silence. Like, there are scenes where she goes walking with her dad and we're kind of combining reviews here, but she goes walking with her dad and there are so many opportunities where she could tread on a, a twig and her dad should spin round and say, freeze, don't move. And that never happens. And to me, I actually think you need to explore in both films the the flaws of the character, not, not being deaf, but their vulnerabilities, I should say, of the characters as much as their super skill of communication. Well, I mean, A, Cl- a Quiet Place has the scenes where Krasinski's character is putting down, you know, soft sand or marking creaky floorboards. But, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, there'd be even things, I mean, I guess in The Silent she's only been uh, deaf for, I don't know, three or four years or whatever it is in that film. But, yeah, I mean, there'd be a whole bunch of things that you wouldn't even realise maybe make sounds and you're accidentally making sounds. I mean, I made a joke before about farting, but if you've been deaf your whole life, maybe you don't know that farting makes noise. Maybe you've been ripping farts your whole life in front of people, loudly. (laughs) Yeah, you always thought it was the smell. You actually didn't realise there was a noise as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So maybe you're right. Maybe they don't drill down enough into that. I mean, on that, should we chat about the the silence then a little bit? Yeah, let's jump to the silence. So... We're kind of, you know, talking about both films because they are so closely linked thematically and conceptually. Did you like it? And if you didn't, what didn't grind your gears? And also, was it the best execution of this shared premise? Um, I, I thought this was okay. Look, I love Tucci. Let's just, I'm just going to put my cards on the table. I'm, I'm hot for Tucci, man. <laughs> I love that guy. He's so great. Is there anything he can't do? I bought his cookbook the other day, Tucci's Table. <laughs> really? Yeah, man, Tucci rules. <laughs> no, no. And he's, got a, and he's got a cookbook. I agree, he rules. I just had no idea that he actually had put out a cookbook. Have you seen him? He's so sophisticated. Yeah, look, I, I love Stanley Tucci as well. I've got a lot of stock invested in him. And I agree. Is there anything he can't do? He can do serious comedy. I always believe him in a role. Um And Uh, I know what he can't do. What? Can't grow a head of hair. Oh, yeah. I knew you'd say that. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But I always believe him in the character that that he's in. And I do think he can elevate a role. And if if you swapped out, say, a B-grade actor into this particular lead role of this film, it's a very different film. It probably is closer to being like one of those uh, mockbusters by that production company Asylum, like those ripoffs of... Jurassic Park and Pacific Rim and so on, um, like Sharknado, um, he just lifts this film. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's great. He's great. It would be a lesser film with Casper Van Dien. Exactly. Good example. Good example. For those in the uh, podcast landscape who don't know who he is, he is uh, the good-looking guy or one of the good-looking guys, the lead of Starship Troopers 
And I think he came back for Starship Troopers three or four. Uh, he, he came back for one of them. I, from memory, the third Starship Troopers is pretty good. I know this is a bit of a digression, but I did like that one. Yeah, it's sort of funny. We've had a discussion offline recently about third films, like um, Deep Blue Sea 3 and someone said Bring It On 3 and oh, yep. Starship Troopers 3. It's like they try and cash in the second time round, and then for the third film they go, okay, we screwed up there. We're a little bit greedy. We rushed things in production. Let's just step back a bit, maybe hire a bit, bit more talent behind the camera to write the script and go again. It's like almost a, a redo. Um, I've written a note here about this film and I can't quite understand what it means, Ben, so maybe you can tell me. I wrote, at least the silence has the right idea about getting rid of babies. Well, I'm interpreting that to say that they didn't try and pursue that idea of the baby being a good vehicle because it's the worst thing that can happen in a landscape where aliens can hear you. Yes, that's, 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 that's it. There's a sequence on the train where all the people on the train and there's a lady with a baby and they're like, get off the train, and then she has to leave the train. They got the right idea. Yeah, and that's great. Um, look, I've got to say, I actually really enjoyed the silence. Like, I really enjoyed it. And we'll get to the reviews by fans and critics soon. But it was raked over the coals and it was pretty much dumped unceremoniously on Netflix after getting a very token release in a few countries. But once it was clear that A Quiet Place had just cleaned up at the box office and really made the most of that idea and kind of spoilt the silence for the audience, it then got its, you know, dump on Netflix. So when you search for A Quiet Place, instead it recommends the silence to you. Nice. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, look, let's go through a few, few differences about it. It starts off with these creatures being, uh, I guess, bat-like evolutions. So they're not aliens, even though they look like aliens, but they conceptually have evolved underground on Earth and then they're released into the world. But more or less, it's the same idea as aliens landing in terms of its effect. Um, I like the idea of it happening in real time because I love that idea when you hit like those images of like landlocked, sorry, um, streets just locked with cars and you go, what would I do? Like, when do you start breaking the law? When do you start driving on the wrong side of the road? When do you nudge a car out of, out of the way? When do you start acting self- selfishly for your family? Or when do others start acting selfishly against you, like the guy does in this film who take, has a gun and wants to kidnap or take, uh, the, do- take the car? So... All that stuff I really empathise with because it's kind of like close to our reality, right? Like with the pandemic happening with COVID-19, these ideas you have like, well, if someone turns up in my house uh, and rather than being a horror film, it's more like a survival film, um, how do I defend myself? What do I do? Where are my escape routes? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I like that kind of uh, initial anxiety when a crisis is happening. And that's pretty much the backbone of a lot of those Films like The Day After Tomorrow. No, that's a bad example. Maybe films like... Like Bird Box. Independence Day. Bird Box is... Yeah, Bird Box. Weirdly, Bird Box is so much like yeah. these that there's a bunch of sequences when I was re-watching these, I just got confused with Bird Box. Well, it's funny you mention that because one of the reviews I read said that this film was designed specifically for the Netflix algorithm. So when you type in Bird Box or Bird Box finishes after you're watching it, it says, you might also enjoy <laughs> The Silence. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh, a movie you can't see, then a movie you can't hear, and then finally a movie where you can't feel. Exactly. 
Um, that's a mockbuster by Asylum. <laughs> that's my pitch for later, Ben. We're going to get back to that. What do you call it? The feelies? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so this film uses a dog instead of a baby, though, really, doesn't it? Like the dog's the uncontrollable, noisy element that, in this case, they decide to get rid of because it's considered, I guess, generally okay. It's, it's, it's comparatively more morally acceptable to sacrifice a dog than a baby? Uh, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how much you like your dog and how little you like your baby, but sure. <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Gabe, because it's a different story. I'm talking about the wider world, the average citizen. Okay, fair. Okay, we'll go with that then. So what I like about this film in, in The Silence, which I can't recall sensing, excuse the pun, in the same way in A Quiet Place, is they do show more how she recognises elements in the world to indicate sound or fear or drama. And they only do it a couple of times, and I wish they did it more in other ways, but there's those two scenes where you see her notice the hairs on the back of the dog stand up. Oh, yeah, I like that. And that's then her knowing the dog is anxious about something. I mean, it's barking anyway, so she should recognise with her eyes that it's barking. But she realises that the dog is quite distressed. It's not barking because it's excited. There's something that's making it very anxious. Um, I wish there was more of that, like not necessarily just showing more hairs on the standing on their end, but just more details where she notices like, I don't know, perhaps perspiration on someone's face or a quivering lower lip or small details that someone who's blind would probably pick up on more than someone who is sighted. Wait, I'm pretty sure someone who's blind won't see someone's quivering lower lip. Sorry, deaf, doff. I'm confusing my bird box and my the silence. Um, totally. So I guess these movies then sort of play out fairly similarly in that they wander around, they can't make much sound, they get attacked, you know, people do some occasional dumb things. In this one, John Corbett, like, fires a gun in the air and gets eat. Um, a big point of difference, though, that you mentioned earlier is the the silence, I guess, ultimately ends with, uh, like you say, steepling your fingers. Perhaps the realest monster of all is man. Yeah, and... What do you think of these particular antagonists? They're basically like your the characters you'd see in The Walking Dead or whatever where people turn to religion uh, in an apocalypse and the religious suddenly become much more ominous. And in this case, they want to take the teenage girl, what's her name again? Allie, because, quote, she's fertile. So it's like, what? Jesus Christ, <laughs> like every parent's worst nightmare. Yeah, but okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Um, Weirdly. Weirdly, we'll just loop back to them in just a sec. They actually have the same plan as the Vesps, which is the name of the monsters, because it turns out the Vesps just want to lay eggs in people's bodies too. Oh, so I, oh, I get it. So we are all the same. <laughs> um, oh, I, I never really put that together as a metaphor. I just thought it was a gross coincidence that it turned out that the monsters just want to, yeah. But, oh, yeah, okay, there you go. Um, I think the human enemies in this are insanely stupid and not particularly well thought out. Like cutting out your tongue doesn't mean you can't make noise. It just makes you a loony. And they continually do in just remarkably loud and dumb things to try and kidnap this young woman. I mean, they've, they've already got a whole bunch of women on their like stupid cult team. Like just get them pregnant. Yeah, I agree. It is weird. Like Let's start with that. They cut their tongues out. That's a defining characteristic. So that's meant to indicate that they're really committed to this cause. But 
You're right. Like, it just means they can't articulate. They can still, like, moan and yell. So if they're being attacked or they get a fright, they can still make a noise which will attract the vesps, the, you know, monsters to kill them. So that doesn't make any sense at all. That's just silly. Um, I guess you could kind of justify it that any cult has its quirks and that'd be a sign of commitment to it. Yeah, well, just wear a pair of Nikes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, wear a wacky matching tracksuit. I don't know. Wear a gag ball. Oh, that'd be awesome. I imagine this like uh, croup just wearing gag balls like they're all from like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I'm not really willing to cut my tongue out, but we all have this BDSM gear that we're going to get around in. <laughs> that'd be great. Well, it's pretty much basically the cast of Mad Max 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. Mad Max 2 actually with, with gag balls. Fuck, the great humongous would kill it in this post-apocalypse. <laughs> he would love it. He would love it. Yeah. Although being the Ayatollah of rock and roller, you know, you probably want to be the Ayatollah of uh, quiet, smooth jazz. Um. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, but you're right, you're right, like that, do some stupid stuff. Like just quickly summarise the top ten or the top three terrible ideas they have. I mean, isn't one of them they set all the phone alarms off or something? But like... It, it really seems like they're trying to capture this girl, but all their plans basically involve making so much noise that she'll just get killed. Um, you know, Or they'll get killed. They're the ones outside the house. They're putting noise outside the house. It's likely they're going to get attacked and they will not get the girl or the girl will be killed and they'll be killed. Not a great plan. Yeah, I mean, in trying to get this girl, they basically decimate their own numbers. So... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, totally. They like lose like half their numbers. Also, too, not sure if it's a sign of the budget, but there are only about seven of them. <laughs> like, it's they're not a big group, are they? No. And, and remind me, do you, do they ever explain why they want her? I mean, yes, because she's fertile, but that's it. Yeah, but they literally just say one line, and I think to be fair, that's all the audience needs to hear. In that, they go, "Oh, great, okay, they're going to sexually assault my teenage daughter." That's enough motivation for him to get out a gun and. And we're, we're, everyone's on board. But it is weird because it's almost too simple. Like, I guess fertile, the implication being they want to increase their numbers opposed to the lead priest wanting to have a harem just for his own pleasure. Yeah. Wait, wait, increase their numbers. Oh, in 16 years from now, we're going to have a big gang. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Great. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. What are you thinking? Or you can have a, a gang of kids. Yeah, that's right. It'll be like... Um, Speaking of Mad Max, Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so we, we found all of these women out there. We, we created these horrible breeding camps and now we are full-time babysitters. <laughs> we just have like 32 children running around. Like, good luck. Oh, incredibly disobedient. Yeah. Noisy as hell. Good luck. Noisy as hell. I mean, we cut their tongues out, but they keep moaning. Actually, that's another thing too. I didn't even think of this at the time, even though I criticised it myself beforehand with The Quiet Place. So they want to get her because she's, quote, fertile, which means have a baby, which means be noisy, which means be killed. That doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be better just to basically approach this family and say, look, we're good guys. Let's just work together as a team because we're stronger as a team and none of us are crying. So, you know, safety in numbers. Like that's a better plan, I would have thought. Mm, That's right. That's right. Interestingly as well, both of these movies have – Smartly written scenes, I guess, where the characters can go somewhere where there is something more loud than what they're doing so that the monsters can't 
hear them. You know, there's a scene in A Quiet Place where they get to speak under the waterfall, you know, and you're like, oh, that's neat. That's your secret spot for speaking. Um, And I guess in the silence they can all have a punch on on the front lawn in a thunderstorm, right? But it does. Yeah, or they escape the vesps in the chemist, I think, the drugstore, by triggering the alarm system and the sprinklers. That's right. Yeah, he. Which basically disorientates them all. Yeah, but doesn't that mean that these monsters would be continually charging around, smashing into things? Like, what happens if a tree falls down? Do they just all attack a tree? You know, like. There's an um, well, the tree falls in a forest and a vesper hears it. <laughs> there's this amazing sequence in The Silence and I would recommend the movie basically for this bit alone, which is someone turns on a wood chipper and literally hundreds of the monsters just fly into the wood chipper. That is the best scene in the film and the best idea. I saw that and I thought I would watch a short film just based on that. But like it is intoxicating to watch. Yeah. It's such a genius idea because it's like – it combines a killing machine with noise perfectly. Yeah. Like, it's perfect. It's perfect. If I was writing that film and I wrote that down, I'd be like, all right, I'm done for the day. I'm having six beers. Like, oh, mate. Mate. It's genius. You know, like, people criticise movies like um, uh, War of the Worlds or I think Signs where it's like the monsters arrived here but then they're allergic to water. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty stupid. Um, but they never really capitalised on that by arming everyone with super soakers or something like that or some industrial-sized water thing. This, though, absolutely nails that idea. And, oh, my God, imagine a movie where they set up just tonnes of industrial-sized wood chippers just to fuck these things up and they were just all flying in there. Oh, oh, oh chef's kiss. Oh, <laughs> total chef's kiss. Like, my mouth is puckered. I, I saw that moment and I was surprised by two things. They didn't set it up. They had such confidence in the idea you hear a noise, because Dad's sort of run off to the side off screen, played by Stanley Tucci. You hear a noise, then cuts to this wood chipper and then flying into the wood chipper and all the blood coming out. Very Fargo-esque, you know, when that scene where, who's your mate? Uh, Peter? Steve Buscemi. Oh, gets put through the wood chipper by Stamare. Yeah. I had, I had Fargo vibes watching that. And then you sort of see Stanley Tucci hiding behind the back, having just sort of triggered the on button. I, I do feel that that was so genius. I mean, the problem is that it's so smart, you would never leave. That would be basically I'd just park that outside the front door. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of the house. And I would make sure that we need food, we need water, and we need electricity or petrol for the wood chipper. I mean, maybe maybe they're edible. So you could set the wood chipper up at the door with them, them, them spraying into the house and you could just eat them. <laughs> You just put your mouth at the end. It's like a smoothie. It's like, yeah, it's like a, mm, a, de- a delicious thin gruel huh. of vesp. Or you basically fertilise the garden, right? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I, so you grow like organic vegetables. How about this? If you had to go outside, you could create a suit that is just covered in blenders. So you turn all the blenders on and walk around with your suit <laughs> and they just fly into you. <laughs> Mate. But it is one of those things, like, to you wonder how long it would keep working for. Like, I guess it depends on how densely populated the area is with the Vesps, that if they would hear from, say, 20 kilometres, would you basically have essentially this thing could run for days and you could basically just drain the entire neighbourhood? Um, it depends on basically how hypersensitive their hearing is and how far they'd come. But- to me, there is a version of this film, maybe that we should sort of save this for the sequel, where some sort of entrepreneurial guy 
or a person who wants to save humanity, basically has the dream wood-chipping vehicle, which is very kind of Mad Max-esque, right? And they become like, you know, lords of the area because they can both attract and kill these things at the same time. I mean, if you have this thing parked on the front of your car, you basically get a car. In fact, you actually basically drive, just tr- you could drive down the highway just dragging this behind you and essentially have a pretty clear run, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, if anything, shouldn't shouldn't have this film done more with the idea that maybe there's power outages or something? Like, because it's just too easy. As soon as they set that up, it's just- Oh, of course. If there was a power outage. And like, so let's say they're using it and going, oh, this has just saved the day. And all of a sudden, there's a power outage or they run out of petrol. And then they realise we're back to square one. I agree. Great idea. Yeah. Nonetheless, though, oh, it's just amazing, this bit. It's just amazing. Yeah. I think to me that's actually the highlight of that scene is the best revelation and solution of both films combined, even though A Quiet Place is a much better film overall. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. Should we jump on, move on? Or is there anything else you want to say? Any final thoughts about whether it was the best execution of this idea? Uh, I think you just nailed it. A Quiet Place is a a better execution and a better made version but but I enjoyed them but I enjoyed them uh, I enjoyed them both I enjoyed them both excellent all right let's jump on now these films aren't cult classics they're quite recent and they're quite small productions so with our multitude of awards these films aren't going to claim many so there wasn't much casting woulda shoulda couldas at all mm. um, the only surprise is that Krasinski initially wanted his wife, Emily Blunt, to play Evelyn Abbott, his wife in the film. She disagreed, didn't want to do that because, you know, it's a bit naff to star alongside your husband who's also directing. But she read the script and loved it and said, I'm in. Um, but That sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> you think so? Why is that? Yeah, it, sounds, I don't know, it just sounds like a bullshit story someone would say in one of those, like, you know, interviews. I I initially didn't want to support my husband in his directorial debut. Um <laughs> Uh, I think he's a fucking idiot, um, you know. But then I read the script and it turns out he's not. (laughs) Hey, do you want to know something crazy, though? Yeah. Get this. Stanley Tucci is married to Emily Blunt's sister. Whoa. So. That makes it even weirder. So hang on. Has he told his sister-in-law and brother-in-law that he's doing a film based on animals with hypersensitive hearing that will kill you if you make a sound? At the same time? That is bizarre. Like imagine this. It's like Christmas 2007 and they're all sitting around and Stanley Tucci's obviously cooked a marvellous Christmas lunch. Just just beautiful. And um, <laughs> and Krasinski- Is he wearing, by the way, a little bow tie and a spectacular kind of tartan vest? No, no. He wouldn't be wearing a bow tie, man. He'd be, he'd be wearing some sort of finely tailored, you know, Tom Ford suit or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so they're all sitting around and Krasinski's just munching on his munching on his food. Ah, I'm John Krasinski. Yeah. Very very noisily munching, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Ah, I'm not as refined as you, Tooch. But and Tooch is like, did you know I'm gonna do a film about uh, a family who must survive in silence? And Krasinski's ears are like, ding. What? <laughs> like, this is a fucking weird coincidence. You've got to admit that the the Tooch is married to Blunt's sister. Yeah, this is really weird because you said 2007, but it's actually more like 2016, like that Christmas lunch, which means 
these guys either don't talk to each other much at all or Krasinski's gone ahead and made a film that's almost identical to his brother who was attached to that film first and it shot first. Oh, man, there's got to be tension in that family, surely. I mean, if you're Tooch, you'd have to be pissed off, right? You'd, you'd feel betrayed because there's no way that Krasinski would argue that, you know, he was being magnanimous in, you know, letting Tooch cross the line first. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't think the Christmas tension would be nearly as bad as, say, the Baldwin's house when Alec asks, um, you know, the, the the fat one from Vampires how he's going, but I think there would still be something palpable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right, you're right. Um, well, I went back to, to a quick little check to see if there were any... Um, other issues besides any casting orders, shoulda, couldas. Um, I did find out a bit to do with the, um, the situation around the sign language. Are you aware of this? No. Well, there's a bit of tension. So in the silence, it got criticised because they didn't cast someone who was deaf. Right. And you might recall when they cast A Quiet Place, they actually praised the fact that they cast a deaf actor Millicent Simmons, who plays the teenager Regan Abbott, whereas in the silence they justify it on the page, I would say, that she suffered an accident three years ago and as a result of that trauma Mm. she's, I think it's called late deaf. She became deaf later in life, which is why when she speaks as well she can enunciate as someone who isn't deaf. So there's a bit of criticism there that it wasn't authentic. Look... Mate, this is a tough one, this situation. We're in a situation now where it's become increasingly challenging for everyone as to who can actors play. Like um, we've had issues and discussions in the media about uh, gay, transgender characters. Um, the rules have changed. Um, some would say that's good, some, some would say that's bad. Um, some would say actors are meant to play anyone. But we're in a climate now where there was criticism because this person wasn't uh, was an abled person, quote, mm-hmm. um, playing that character. I think it's okay for the silence as the character is set up, but she was also criticised, by the way, the uh, ship, Shipka. She's the girl from, um, what's that film? Uh, that TV series? Mad Men. And she apparently didn't sign as well or as accurately as would be expected from someone who's been deaf for three years. So that was just putting out there one of the the dramas they had in relation to, the social commentary in terms of how each of these films dealt with casting and representation. I think they totally could have hired a um, deaf actress for, I mean, for both really. It's not like you've cast Macaulay Culkin in his prime as some sort of star power argument. They're, I mean, I've never heard of this show Mad Men, so, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't see why they couldn't have. I mean, hey, Marley, Marley Maitland won an Oscar in like- Yeah, exactly. 1985 or something. She's the deaf actor who played, which film was that? Uh, I can't recall. Children of a Lesser God. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I think she was one of the critics actually of The Silence. So, and you're right. Like I don't think uh, Kenan Shipka from Mad Men, the teenager- is so well-known, so popular that the film would have been funded based on her. So, look, tough situation. I can understand the direction that the filmmakers took each way, um, but I agree. 
they could have reasonably cast Death Actor, which would have made it actually also perhaps more realistic or naturalistic in terms of the way that they would sign. Yeah, that's right. Um, apparently in A Quiet Place, there are even nuances in the sign language. So, for example, uh, the dad sort of signs in a short, abrupt way because he's much more practical, whereas the mum signs in more of an empathetic, loving way, so her signing is slower and more expressive. And then the daughter, Millicent Simmons, she signs in a way that's more petulant because she's sort of like a frustrated teenager. So there's actually this subtle authenticity to the way they express themselves physically. Yeah, that's right. Hey, did you ever see that film um, uh, The Tribe? No, that can't be related to... That Ukrainian film? No, I was going to say that's not connected to the film uh, Lost Boys, The Tribe. Or the Lost Tribe? No, <laughs> no, Lost Boys, the Tribe. That's that's not very good. But um, no, the Tribe is a is this Ukrainian film set in a boarding school for deaf students, and it's all in sign language. It's very interesting. Very good. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, apparently, speaking of like sign, the, in the actual first script of A Quiet Place, there wasn't any dialogue at all. But not only that. There weren't subtitles for the sign language. Oh, sick! At all? That'd be good. Yeah, and. And so I mentioned before the different ways in which these three characters express themselves. Uh, that was going to be the way of conveying tension, like one person's being loving and smiling and the signing reflects that. But apparently there was a, there's a beat in the film at the part where basically the daughter and the dad are talking to each other, essentially just sort of apologising for arguing the past. And he sort of says, you know, I loved you, I've always loved you. And... When they realised they had to try and put subtitles to that to try and really convey the emotional beats of that, they then decide to put subtitles to the rest of the film. But I'd be really interested to watch this film without any subtitles at all and to see how it plays in that way because then that's, I guess, pure cinema and to see how much you can extrapolate from their gestures and faces on screen and if you can kind of feel those emotional beats without any words or translation at all. Ah. Pure cinema. Don't you love it? Pure cinema. <laughs> okay. Um, as for the other awards, Spot the Aussie, Big Trouble and Little Production and Marketing Methodology, Madness and Missteps, I've got nada. What, the, what do you mean? There was an, you said Spot an Aussie? There was an Aussie? Who? Miranda Otto is in the silence. Oh, of course. I completely forgot. Hey, by the way, pretty small role, but she bit like Stanley was really good. Uh, she like Stanley was really good. Yeah, she was good, but uh, look, I don't have uh, Otto's table at home, so pff, whatever. <laughs> All right, let's jump to uh, some of the uh, the bouts. Let's start with box office, shall we? So, which movie was the box office champ? Do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, a quiet place, right? <laughs> yeah, obviously, a quiet place. So, the quiet place is an incredible success story. When it was going in to release. It went up from about a tracking of opening at $17 million for the weekend to 20 to 25. Opened at about $50 million in opening weekend. It was only made for between 17 and $21 million. So that's just outstanding. It goes on to make $188 million domestically in the States, plus $153 million internationally for a worldwide total of $350 $41 million off a $17 million budget. That is incredible. And actually, I've got to say, for a film that actually has subtitles, sure, it's not like a Ukrainian slow-burning drama, 
but it's got people signing and using subtitles to convey what they're saying. And usually subtitles are just the death knell for mainstream movies. But that is an unqualified smash and much more successful than I recall. Yeah, it's a little wonder they've made a sequel, right? Yeah, I mean, the sequel could be made for twice as much and make half as much and it'll still make a lot of coin. Now, we get to the silence. Oh, this is sad, Gabe. This is so sad. So I couldn't find the budget for this one. What would you guess the budget would have been, though, do you think? Uh, Six million bucks. Yeah, okay. I would. Yeah. I think the CG was pretty impressive with those Vesps. Um, although the cast weren't huge, it was very contained in story. Yeah, maybe six, six to ten. Um, less than a quiet place. Well, this film made two point three million dollars globally. Um, it was released overseas in a couple of territories in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. But Netflix bought it and released it globally, and that's where it made its money. Yeah, unfortunately, it might have been good for the catalog on Netflix but not great for the box office and for the producers of this movie, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. And, and this isn't a Netflix – Netflix didn't finance this movie, right? They just, they just bought it and then slapped Netflix on it. Yeah, which is probably, I'd say, what, one in two of their movies? Yeah, totally. Like you don't – it's like, you know, when a studio buys a film at Sundance, like they slap their logo over, over it, but they weren't responsible in any way for making it in the first instance. But, yeah, this was something that came to them after the fact. Uh, let's jump to how they were critically received on Rotten Tomatoes. So I think you know the answer, Gabe. Uh, but have a guess how well A Quiet Place scored with critics compared to The Silence. My guess would be that A Quiet Place would have a very, some sort of very high score and The Silence would ever so slightly unfairly have a much, much lower one. And you are right. Wow. 96% for A Quiet Place, which is phenomenal. It's huge. Uh, with 371 critics' reviews compared to, unfortunately, a lowly 30% for The Silence, which I think is a bit unfair. And the reviews were really scathing. I don't think the film deserves 30% at all. And I really enjoyed A Quiet Place. I think the film's at least a, a 60% movie. But that's just me. But, I mean, as we've said before, um, to be fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, you just need a review that is the equivalent of a 6 out of 10, correct? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they will call it fresh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the silence, the silence is a 3 out of 5, it's a 6 out of 10, it's a 60 out of yeah. a, a 100, you know? Why not? It's not, it's, not a, it's not a total turkey. Well, the fans disagree with us as well because they gave... A Quiet Place, 83%, but the aggregated score for The Silence is only 26 which again surprises me because I would have thought this film's got enough going on that a person scrolling through Netflix and watching it on a Saturday night with some popcorn and a couple of beers would be quite happy with this. Hmm, yeah. Hmm, something's afoot. Who votes I know. As an audience member on Rotten Tomatoes. Just weirdos, though. Weirdos. Yeah, see, I never have, Gabe, and nor have you, so I'm not sure who's doing the voting. No. Anywho, um, did the first film help or hinder the box office of the second film, do you think? <laughs> I would say it ate its lunch. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's move on to the awards. Uh, I forgot. Are we doing drum rolls? I don't know. Are we doing, like, 
Slick Beats or nothing? I can't recall. Uh, no, no. Well, because these are both about um, uh, being quiet, perhaps Sam could add, you know, um, uh, a minute or two of silence just to, just to <laughs> pump people up. <laughs> Sam. Just to get them hyped. Please do not conclude a minute and a half of silence. All right, let's go with best title. Let's get jazzed here. Best title, A Quiet Place or The Silence? Uh, I don't really like either of them. I mean, Scorsese made a movie called Silence that came out three years before The Silence. And and A Quiet Place seems like something that, a, you know, an emotionally damaged person would go to have a sad meditate. Yeah, I agree. Or it sounds like it's a um, an indie film or maybe it's like a film where perhaps a character like uh, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven has gone to you know, see out his final years after making Unforgiven. Ha, no, that's 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 just the outhouse, the japes, <laughs> whatever it's called. Um, I don't like either. Um, so I call this one a draw, really. Yep, yep. To me, they sound very inactive. That's the problem. They're very passive titles. Totally. Do you remember that movie, I think James Wan directed it, about like killer ventriloquist doll called Dead Silence? Look, it's much more B-grade sounding, but at least I, I kind of know what I'm getting. Actually, that would actually be a much better title for both movies. Dead Silence. The best the best title goes to James Wan's unseen... <laughs> Dead Silence. ...Ventriloquist <laughs> film, Dead Silence. Yeah. Nice. All right, jumping to best poster. If you've got an app on your phone, I've put both posters side by side so you can compare. Gabe, why don't you describe to our podcast listeners what each of these posters look like? Well... Ben, I have described this before and I've noticed on the app that you've used a different poster. So with the A Quiet Place, are we using are you using the poster where Emily Blunt has her hand over her face and a tear running down her cheek or the one where she's enjoying a nice bath and there's a shadowy figure on the wall? How about from now on when we go through this award, you can actually choose which one. I think we generally go for the one that was okay. most often used at the cinema probably in Australia, which we've seen. So it's usually the international poster, but often it's the same as the American poster. And I will use that one uh, on the app. So you tell me. What about we- Of the bathtub. Yep, go on. What about we use the one that's on IMDb? Like when I when I go to A Quiet Place, Yep. here is the poster. It is, right. it is a poster- Let's do that. Of Emily Blunt. She's in a bath. I don't think she's having a bath. She might be hiding in a bath, though it's unclear. And there's a shadowy figure, probably a monster- May, yeah, I would say it's a monster, although that's also not clear. Um, and uh, she looks a little scared. And the silence? That is Tucci staring up into the sky as a lot of, I mean, having seen the movie, I know they're monsters, but looking at this, they could be, you know, just, just seagulls or, um, you know, crows uh, flying around. Well, they have like bat-like wings and like a dragon-like tail. So I think if you look carefully, you know they're not quite bats or birds, but it isn't very clear. Like you could have had a much clearer direct silhouette so you knew that they were definitely alien-esque. I mean, you could say the same thing about A Quiet Place. Yeah, well, okay. I've got to say this. I think both posters are terrible. Right, okay. I think the one of Emily Blunt in the bath is just silly because – you can't see if she's dressed or not, which is a crucial detail. <laughs> I think if you look really, really closely, you can see. Wait, wait. wait. Why is that a crucial detail? Well, because <laughs> she's trying to. If if a woman's in a bath, a hint of sauciness, and she's implicitly naked, Ooh. you probably skew towards it being close to like a, a home invasion horror movie, right? Or an erotic thriller. Or an erotic thriller, right? 
Now, I th- if you look really closely, and it's hard because the film is kind of deliberately desaturated in colour and quite grimy and gritty in its aesthetic, you can kind of see that she's wearing a top. So she therefore isn't having a bath. The bath's probably empty of water. But it's not clear. It's not clear. Like your first glance, if this goes past you on a bus or you look on the side of a bus stop, you're not going to necessarily work out straight away that she's hiding in the bath with clothes on, which to me is pretty crucial to then interrogating what sort of movie it is. And the shadow looks more like a human shadow. So to me, it looks closer to being a home invasion movie, which is totally misrepresentative of what it actually is. A creepy uncle movie? A creepy uncle movie, hide Jesus. (laughs) And the silence, again, I mean, it could just look like it's a version of the birds, but I don't feel like those characters are threatened. They don't look scared. They're just kind of like looking up like they're admiring what's going on. Like the female teenage character is just staring neutrally. Like there's no – I don't see a furrowed brow. I don't see mouth agape. Um, I didn't see white eyes. So I think they're both terrible posters. Um, And to me, we're choosing the better of two evils. Over to you. Well, why not choose? Why not choose neither? <laughs> we chose neither for the title. Wow! Let's let's just, let's do a whole whole series of awards where no one wins anything. Dead rubbers. Okay, let's jump to our third award then, because so far it's zero zero two in a row. It's the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after the American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So, who jumped from indie films and got their big break in either of these twin movies, starting with A Quiet Place? I mean. We're starting with The Quiet Place, but surely the winner here is just John Krasinski. I mean, he went from guy on admittedly beloved sitcom to, you know, um, well-respected director, actor, um, uh, studio helmer, uh, guy with a beard, sexy guy, rugged guy. Surely, surely. Okay, I was 99% sure you'd say the deaf teenage star Millicent Simmons because- Looking at Krasinski, right, before this film, yeah, sure, he was in The Office, but he also went on to do, didn't he do like a Michael Bay movie at some stage as well? Yeah, 13 Hours. 13 Hours where he he got buffed. So that to me was his big break. Like he got buffed, grew a beard and played a SAS-type character. I think that's when he basically got his big break outside doing the uh, the old sitcom. Whereas for Millicent Simmons, right, Pretty hard to get a break as a deaf actress in Hollywood. Uh, this movie does $350 million worldwide and she's a key part of it and that was a great voice of representation for the deaf community. So I'm nominating her, but I'm putting Krasinski down for an award later on because this is huge for him, you know, like it's a big opportunity. So what do you think? Okay, give it to give it to Millicent. Was there anyone in the silent who jumped out? Anyone there? I mean, both these films have very small cast too, so there are limited opportunities for award nominees. Anyone jump out? No. <laughs> Give it to Millicent, you know. Okay. How about the director, John R. Leonetti? Oh, no, looking at IMDb, he's done heaps of TV, so he's fine. Okay. All right. Millie gets it. Okay. Before they were famous award or blinking you miss them, starting with A Quiet Place, Again, small cast. Any blink? Any blinks? Uh, Maybe John Corbett. <laughs> in the in the silence, John Corbett. Well, I mean, he's in it enough, isn't he? No, no one gets anything for this one. I think there's no one. Yeah, I, I agree. Yep. 
dead rubber again. All right, punching on. This will be the shortest podcast episode so far. Uh, the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in a supporting role in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with A Quiet Place? Uh, I don't know. There's only six credited actors in that movie. The, the kid who dies, dumb kid. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty good. Idiot child. Idiot child. And how about the silence? Uh, look, what about grandma? <laughs> she she rushes off and sacrifices herself for nothing. Yeah, I thought grandma was actually pretty good. You know. I actually thought that on paper there isn't much to that role, but I found her quite an empathetic character and I actually really believed the relationship between her and her daughter. So, you know, I thought she was good. And also a few reveals, like it's revealed maybe conveniently, but it works out believably that she's an ex-nurse. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Let's give it to Kate Trotter, who played the grandma in The Silence. I mean, again, not a highly contested award, but, you know, I mean, we have some years where Oscars have a great selection. Other years we have um, Green Book. <laughs> nice, nice. You don't have to diminish Kate Trotter's, um, you know, um, uh, effort here, though. Kate, you, you earned it. Yeah. Kate, I will still polish this award and have it expressed career to you. You deserve it regardless. He's he polishing the shit out of that award. <laughs> All right. Thinking about you, Kate. <laughs> the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Gabe, tell me, who hasn't made the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, oh, starting gosh. with A Quiet Place? It's thin, it's thin, thin pickings, this, uh, this pair, isn't it? Uh it really is because we haven't had much time since the films were released to really kind of judge if people didn't take advantage of their opportunities. Um, I mean, look, it is a shame that Millicent Simmons, who is the teenage girl in A Quiet Place, she's been in a couple of TV episodes. She's in the sequel and a movie called Close Up uh, in 2020. But, you know, there's just going to be fewer opportunities for her because there are fewer deaf actors portrayed on screen. So... I wouldn't say that she squandered a chance. I'd just say there are less opportunities for her. Okay. Um, I guess if you go to the silence, um, again, it's been such a short time since these films were released. I don't think you could really, you know, ding anyone for not making the most. No, no. Dead rubber? Dead rubber. Dead rubber. Dead rubber. All right, moving on. Short and sweet. The winner, winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies? be it in front or behind the camera, and was this their career high? So a quiet place. So this is the one you want to give to Krasinski, right? Yeah, he gets a screenwriting credit, he directs it, he's in it, it makes a bucket load of cash. He gets critically acclaimed for it as well, like 96% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's only his third movie and they're doing a sequel. Um, and basically I think he then really fully leverages himself away from the shadow role the previous character he played in The Office. Hold on, hold on. It's his third movie. That's Yeah, so he actually What? This is this you know, this is the thing about Hollywood run. They they tried to fucking cover that shit up, didn't they? Yeah. So you were the, They tried to pretend like this was his yep. debut, didn't they? So Gabe and I hate this. This is terrible thing in the film industry 
where people are lauded for just coming out of the gate with a debut performance on screen, behind the camera, uh, and it's their first film. And it's this dumb thing where we idolise these people that do that, whereas in every other profession outside the film industry, outside the TV industry, you would not be, like, thrilled when someone with no training in medicine does open-heart surgery or no training. I'm flying the plane. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> look at this. Exactly. Like, that never happens, except for perhaps that time in the, in the Phantom Menace when that little kid's flying that spaceship without training. Besides that one occasion, in the real world, you don't actually applaud someone without any experience jumping in to do something and then pulling it off. Like, if they pull it off, it's like, mate, that was an absolute fluke. Like, thank Christ we got past that, but that wasn't a good idea in the first place, and let's not celebrate this as being a way forward. But for some reason... If a director makes a, a film and it's a smash and there was high risks and stakes in actually putting that person in the director's chair in the first place, we celebrate that. Um, but, Gabe, did you see on IMDb what he's done beforehand? Wow. He directed a movie called The Hollers? What is this? Yeah. With, with, uh, what is this? With Margot Martindale, who I love. Oh, yeah. Charlotte Copley. Oh, shit. Richard Jenkins, Anna Kendrick. Charlie Day's in this movie. Randall Park. Yeah. like Oh, I love Randall this Park. This is like, this is absolutely chock-a-block. Yeah. Uh, it's like one of those American, mid-2010 American indies, you know, about some sad sack going home to his small town. You know those ones. Yeah, they're all the same. You know. Yeah, that was Steve Carell started in about three. Yeah, yeah. Like um, Krasinski was in one earlier, like called Nobody Walks, you know. Just the same, like, you know, oh, I'm a sad. What is it about two of the most famous people from The Office have directed and starred in, between them, five films about sad sacks going home? What does that say about their experience from that sitcom? Were they just desperate to kind of return to their small town roots to try and wash themselves of their network crimes? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they had a movie night one day and they all watched The Family Stone and were like, that's a good movie. Let's all go and fuck off and make a whole bunch more of that. <laughs> you, ever, you ever see The Family Stone? Pretty good. I actually like that. Yeah. Same, same thing. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's very pleasant, uh, you know. Well, the other film in 2009, so it was made like 10 years before A Quiet Place, is called Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. It stars actors such as Timothy Hutton, Corey Stoll, Chris Messina. I'm, I'm not hearing any. Max Mingella. I'm not hearing any hideous men here. Will Arnett. Will Fort. Clark Peters. What? Dominic Cooper. Like, seriously. like. But where's the hideous men? <laughs> exactly. They're all glorious men. Uh, that's, that's, if I rented that, I would be expecting some elephant man shit. Like, come on. Where is the... Where's the hit? Maybe, maybe it's ironic, and it turns out all those actors you just mentioned have black hearts and are in fact horrible people. And the hideousness is, you know, there's that saying, "Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes clean to the bone." Maybe what Krasinski is saying is that who was one of those actors? Dominic Cooper. Yep, is a fucking murderer. <laughs> has, has done some bad shit, man. He's done some bad shit. Who knows? Anyway, but Krasinski gets it for his. Definite debut, A Quiet Place. Did he have any contenders from the silence? No, no, of course not. No. <laughs> of, co of course not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Best Dialogue Award. I can't recall any gems. Did any particular lines jump out to you? I mean, no. Not uh, not while I was watching it was I ever. What? 
like that. Well, the film was basically predominantly sign language and not much dialogue. There's only a few translations on screen, so there aren't any opportunities, any quips really, are there? No. Now, they didn't even do anything cool like... I'd say the dead rubber. Like right before Emily Blunt shoots the monster in the head, she should have like mouthed the words fuck you or something, you know? That would have been cool. Yeah, or, or just yelled it out. Oh, yeah, I guess she could have done that. Like if she's, in about, if she's about to kill it anyway, she can basically yell that out. I agree. Good opportunity wasted. <laughs> All right, moving on. Man, this is just dead rubber after dead rubber. Okay. Uh, we're up to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Again, very challenging in a film where you can't talk, but I think we both have the same nominee in mind for The Silence. Is- Do you want to say that one, two, three at the same time? Okay. I'll let you pull up an IMDb, the list. Okay, okay. But I think you're going to name the same person as me. Okay. We'll go one, two, three, then say it. Do a name, do a name, name the name of the, of the character or the name of the actor? Let's do the character because my feeling is no one knows really who this actor is anyway. Okay, the name of the character? Okay. Yeah, okay. One, two, three. The, the Reverend. Reverend. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> um, um, yeah, he's a lot, right? He pretty much starts at 10 out of 10 and goes to 12. Yeah, Billy, Billy McLellan, Lellan, Billy McLellan. Yep. Who I, who I haven't seen in anything, although he's got tons of credits on IMDb, a lot of video game stuff, TV stuff, but... But, I mean, fair enough. If you're playing a a priest who's cut out your own tongue who wants to start some sort of, like, really, really gross post-apocalyptic breeding farm, you, you have no choice but go to 11. What, you want to underplay that? <laughs> That's true. That's true. All right. Billy McClellan playing the Reverend gets it. Let's jump to a Taking a Paycheck Award. Speaks for itself. Who is cashing in or cashing out, Gabe? Anyone? Well, I don't think so. What about? I think everyone was doing this for the big break. What about Tucci? What about Tucci? I mean, it's not really his usual, usual type of movie. I mean, I'd like to see Tucci in more horror movies, but it's been a long time since he played, you know, Hitman. I think it's the first time, though, that he's played a lead, right? I mean, he doesn't play a lead very often. No, he's very dependable as a supporting character. Um, but, yeah, okay, so that's not really taking a paycheck, is it? Not really. I mean... Maybe John Corbett, but he's not actually famous enough to really be able to afford paychecks either. So, yeah, I I don't think anyone's really doing it for the cash. I think we're at a dead rubber again. This is like a record of all time. Maybe Miranda Otto. Uh, I wish John Corbett would grow his hair out again. Hey, it was much better when he had long hair, you know? I think he's thinning slightly at the top, which makes it a bit harder. But um, I like John Corbett. I like him a lot. He's going to get an award very soon. Stand by. Wait, yeah. Okay. All right. Nobody then. All right. So no winners there. Let's move on to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the iconic performance by Stephen Tobolowsky, who played Ned Ryerson, the insurance salesman from Groundhog Day. Gabe, who triggered Hates That Guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with The Quiet Place? Uh, John Krasinski? Ah. <laughs> yeah, pr- probably. How about The Silence? Is this your Corbett Award? Yeah, I think so. Don't you think? People would recognise him as... I mean, Tucci as well. Tucci as well. Yeah, I think they're both nominees. I mean, John Corbett, you go, okay, he's the guy from Northern Exposure in the early 90s. Then he was the boyfriend in Sex and the City and Sex and the City 2, the movie, Um, and also the husband in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. I reckon he's up there. Um, Maybe. Tucci's the same as well. But he's been a mainstay 
as supporting guys in movies for the last 30 years, you know? Yeah. Ever since L- Lucky Luciano in Billy Bathgate. You know what I mean? Oh, for me, it always comes back to playing the dentist in A Life Less Ordinary. Oh, yep. 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 That's a good one. Okay. Let's give it Let's give it to a uh, little Toochie too. Yes. Tooch. The Tooch. Okay. Moving on. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, named after the awesome actor from Get Shorty, Heist and A Life Less Ordinary. So, Gabe, ah. A Quiet Place. Again, small cast. No one. No one. I mean. The silence. They're cast enough. Uh, look, I'll, I, this could be a podcast where we don't give away a lot of awards and the only awards we give away are to Tucci. Because. Okay. I can't. Tucci gets it again. I can't, I can't get <laughs> enough. I can't get enough of the Tucci. Touch me there, Tucci. This is like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King at the Oscars in 2003 or 2004, where it's just like. A cleanup. It's all, it's just Tooch the whole way. It's a tsunami of Tucci too. I, I challenge you or anyone listening to think of any movie, any movie whatsoever that wouldn't be improved with Tucci in one of the roles. You know, Piranha Three D. Tucci would fit in there absolutely fine. He could have played <laughs> uh, Adam Scott's character, Ving Rhames's character. He could have played Elizabeth Shue's character. He could, you know, he could have played. Anybody. Bring it on. I'm sure there was a father role there or, he, you know, put him in a wig. Um, you see? You see? Yeah, your mama to be in. <laughs> it's your mama to, as if you don't want to see Diego Luna and Stanley Tucci give each other handjobs. <laughs> the last king of Scotland. Well, obviously he can't do blackface and play Idi Amin, but, man, he could have, he could have essayed um, that guy from those X-Men movies role. McAvoy. But you can't do it, Ben. You can't catch me out. There's nothing. (laughs) You'd have to find a movie which has no male characters, which probably has never been made because, you know, the the men in Hollywood would not allow such a thing. Um, (laughs) All right. Moving on then. Okay. I I, I hear you. I hear you. Is he nominee for the next award, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character Nick Cage played in Gone in 60 Seconds? Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Again, I don't think there are many. There's not really any silly names in this, is there? None. No, dead rubber, moving on. (laughs) Okay. The Memento Award. Name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, the woodchipper I'd forgotten in silence. I just loved that the second time. Oh, that that definitely gets it then because I actually had seen this film as a one and done, so there was nothing to forget. But I would concur because that was the standout moment, I think, from both movies for me. So let's give it to The Silence. Yes. Well done. The Silence gets one award. Yes. Except for Tucci, of course. Well, yeah. All right. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of clones. Gabe, have these films inspired more films based on censors since they were released? Uh, I mean, what year did Bird Box come out? Was it around the same year, same time? Yeah, I think so. 2019, 18. So that's in the same window. Um, I don't know of any films in the works now except for a sequel to A Quiet Place. So why don't we call this one a a nada, a dead rubber as well. Okay. They'll bring us to the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Ward. All right. Named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say 
there's an opportunity to make a sequel to A Quiet Place or The Silence. And they're both about a deaf girl and a family who use sign language to survive when the world is under attack from terrifying blind creatures with hypersensitive hearing that hunt their human prey by sound. So they're making a sequel right now to A Quiet Place. But who's to say we can't do a sequel, the third film, and they haven't done a sequel to The Silence? So which one do we make a sequel to? And what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Um, I have a question for you, Ben. Shoot. Both of these movies are about monsters that hunt by, you know, uh, sound. And in Bird Box, they have the monsters that sort of hunt by sight. Or you can't look at them. You'll, you'll die if you look at them. Um, what are the other senses? Is there a way we can somehow leverage, you know, the success of this by saying... Hey, you loved you loved having to be quiet in a quiet place, and you loved having to shut your eyes in Bird Box. But now, be prepared to uh, be hunted by taste or smell or feel. <laughs> is there anything we can do with that? You know, I mean, you you you, you laugh, you laugh, but is there? So, what have we got? We've got taste. Feel and what's the fifth one? Uh, smell. Smell. Okay. So, look, I like this. I like where you're going here. So, okay. we're either doing a sequel to them where there's a new alien or we're doing kind of like a spin-off in the world. We're world-building the sense movies, right? Yeah, totally. So, Bird Box has kind of stolen our thunder for one. So, we've got three senses to play with. Yeah. So, let's think about this. We know that certain animals like sharks, right, they kind of, you know, can sense with an extra sense, which is like vibrations or electromagnetic fields, right? Mm -hmm. So we can always bring in an extra element like that and bats are the same with echolocation. Mm -hmm. So let's think about it. In some films you have like sniffer dogs chasing people based on smell, right? Yeah. So let's think about it like this. So either an alien or a genetically modified real-life animal, like for example the sharks in Deep Blue Sea, where they're just based on real-life animals but are made smarter or stronger. We'd have like super dogs, like Hulk dogs from Ang Lee's The Hulk, who have great sniffing ability and they can trace you down. Like they are basically the bloodhounds from hell. Or they're like that crazy demonic dog from Ghostbusters. Yeah, totally. That terrorises Rick Moranis. So what do you have to... That's sort of one angle. What do you have to do there? You have to never make a smell, otherwise they'll get you. So you have to be. <laughs> I know where you're going here. <laughs> no, no, I've already made the fart joke twice. I'm not doing that again. Um, you have to like sweat would smell, dirty clothes would smell. You have to scrub yourself all the time. I mean, if you can't sweat, you're a bit fucked. The only person who can survive that is, hey, remember that interview with Prince Andrew where he was like, I'm not a sex pest because I don't sweat because of something that happened to me in the Falklands? <laughs> That's true. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see a movie where sex pest Prince Andrew is the hero. So. You know, maybe not smell. What about monsters that hunt by taste? Um, They're just monsters that lick everything. <laughs> so it's basically like, imagine, say, Venom, you know, with that giant tongue, just sort of like oh, yeah. crawling through the streets like a slug-like character with this massive tongue just licking for a trace of where humans have walked or sat. And how would you avoid that? You'd have to make yourself taste nothing. 
you'd have to make yourself or at least taste bad that they wouldn't want to eat you. Yeah, so you basically you walk around rubbing yourself in like garlic or something which they don't like or dog poo. Or if they love dog poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was something like, say, rubbing yourself in like one of those, you know, scented candles or like a vanilla oatmeal soap bar, that'd be fine. Everyone's just clean. Like the, the hassle in life there is just not washing yourself in some luxurious sort of bath gel. But if you had to cover yourself on something gross, like mashed up maggots or dog poo to survive, that's not really a life you want, is it? No, no. What does the predator, the predator hunts because it can see heat. It's not really the same, is it? Oh, but that's- No, that's a different thing. No, but we can, we've mentioned echolocation and electromagnetic fields. We add heat to it. I mean, look, you know, essentially, if you stick with heat, you're basically up against the most successful film involving a heat-seeking- Predator, which is Predator. So we can't do that. Okay. What else we got? Taste, smell. Feel? Feeling? How does a monster hunt by feeling? Or unless it's emotion. Have they done that? Oh, that's not bad. Ben, you tell me. Is there a movie where you're not allowed to feel any emotions? And if you feel anger or sadness, the monster who somehow is from an intergalactic planet where they've lost the the ability to feel... (laughs) That's so fun. It's great. Now, what they basically are, the superpower of the aliens is they've got incredible EQ. They're incredibly empathetic. So they sense someone around them being happy or sad. They zoom in. So I'm sure there's been a science fiction film in the past, which is basically about people who can't express themselves because it's banned by some sort of well, yeah, dictatorship, right? Like we've seen- Well, equilibrium is that, right? Yeah, right. So- so don't love people, be very pragmatic and bury your emotions. Right. But in that film, you're not actually hunted if you express affection. No. It's just outlawed as as something to characterise you. I don't know. Is there something there, uh, a, a, a monster that kills when you are happy or kills when you are sad? You know, is there a metaphor there or something? Well, ironically, in these two films, A Quiet Place and the Silence, the characters that have somewhat an advantage uh, deaf protagonists who in the real world might be bullied, ostracised, teased and be disadvantaged by being deaf. But in this world where they can communicate without noise, it's an advantage. So in this a post-apocalyptic world, what becomes uh, what was a negative becomes a positive. I guess in this version, if you're autistic, for example, or you have a personality in which you can't emote or feel, Ironically, you'd actually have an advantage in this world. Yeah. Okay, so here's the pitch. Um, An autistic child teams up with a middle-aged sociopath to defeat a a group (laughs) of intergalactic monsters who prey upon emotion. It's called Dead Inside. Bang, done. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the trouble there would be that it'd be challenging for our audience to identify with the characters if they're not actually emoting on screen. Yeah, but they they teach each other something, you know. They, They each learn. Somehow, you know. And so what's the actual storyline? Is it pretty much along the same building blocks as A Quiet Place and The Silence where basically they encounter each other. In the first sequence, they basically, you know, almost kill each other because they both, let's just say, for example, they both encounter the same isolated house or the remnants of a barbecue or something which has been left as, you know, the previous people have been killed. And they both descend on the same 
vital source of food or water at exactly the same time and stand there with guns or spears aimed at each other and they form an uneasy alliance when they realise. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and look, as we are talking it through and maybe this isn't as, as, as bad an idea as it seems, but he doesn't have to be a sociopath. I was being a bit silly. What if it's just a guy or a woman, a character, who's lost everything? They once had it all, a, a, a family, a home, you know, um, a, a great book of jokes, but that's all gone now. So, oh, so what if, for example, they lost it because they were they had a high EQ and are very emotional? Let's say it's a mother, right? She's a caring person, but her caring character was what led and drew, drew the attention of these aliens that killed and wiped out her family that she loved so much. So she now suffers post-traumatic stress, right? Oh, yeah. So she's partly closed herself off consciously and subconsciously because she knows that's what led to the death of her family. But at the same time, it was such a scarring experience seeing them basically slaughtered in front of her that she even finds it hard to care even if she wants to. Yeah. But then what happens throughout the film is she takes this little kid under her wing, but as they start to battle these aliens on their way to a safer ground, perhaps an island or something where the aliens don't dare go, she starts sort of having these maternal instincts rekindled inside her mm. and starts caring and defending this child, mm. which then makes her increasingly in the last third of the film as they're reaching this sort of oasis, this utopia, makes her now a danger to that very same child. That's right. The, the closer they come, the more they bond, the more danger it becomes. Oh, it's like the, you're giving the audience what they want, but at the same time, oh, God, you know, will she crack a smile? You know, so it was I a like final it. scene where basically perhaps there's like some sort of utopia in a cave with a waterfall where the aliens can't get through or something and he's, she's pushing the boy out on the boat and the aliens are surging towards them. And then what she does, the, the aliens are going towards her and the boy separately. So she has to lure the aliens away from the boy but at the same time she will die herself if she does this. And so she then, rather than like yell or scream as they do in the silence or a quiet place, or in Bird Box doing something to try and draw them towards you, she smiles. That's right. And there's a twinkle in her eye of true emotion. That's right. Just filling her face. And once she smiles, the alien surging towards her effectively adopted son then changes tack, pivots towards her, and she is vanquished. That's right. Leaving an autistic boy in a boat near a waterfall. <laughs> Who survives? Um, Who survives? But, oh, totally, totally. But seriously, I, I, I kind of like this pitch, Ben. I like where we went with this. Uh, you know, a world where you can't laugh or cry or show emotion. You know, it's good. And Not the I, I, I you know, yeah. A bit like A Quiet Place or The Walking Dead or any film set in a post-apocalyptic landscape, they'll encounter some dickheads along the way who are basically people that make you realise that, you know what, the aliens ain't so bad after all because humans, when, you know, pushed into a corner, can be very, very bad versions of themselves. That's right. And can be as threatening. Like, we've seen it in The Road, The Book of Eli. They're just challenges along the way. So the, the most the most, the most, most dangerous thing they can encounter is a, a, a gang of out-of-work comedians <laughs> who are both trying to tell jokes but also sobbing uncontrollably because comedians <laughs> mostly hate themselves. So, you know. <laughs> just therefore drawing every alien within 10 kilometres. Exactly, exactly. So what's the title? Because we're in the home stretch here. We need to bring it home hard to this judo executive and just 
land with a title that just nails it. Hey, look, I'm going back to my idea of dead inside. And look, that could also tie into maybe these creatures lay eggs in you. Ah, nice. So your, your title is very clever, if you will. Well, look, let's not, um, <laughs> let's not, uh, let's not give me an award for that one. Uh, I'll say it'll do, you know, we could put it in parentheses, working <laughs> title, you know. All right. So that, our sequel to A Quiet Place or The Silence, in fact, We'll just call it a spin-off in the world in the spirit of American Pie Bandcamp, using some of the same concepts and making an entirely different story with a new cast, is called Dead Inside. I guess. Why not? What a sell. All right, Gabe. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so spectacular. And you can catch Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. Gabe, where can the folks find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Good one. And you can find me as at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this pod and all others in places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, share it with your mates. Get the word out. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Battles. No. <laughs> What's this podcast called, Gabe? I don't remember. That's the one. Twin Movies. <laughs> Stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Error free for your amusement. See you, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs>